0: Welcome to Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This is Jeremy Bement, your host, welcoming you to episode 138 of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This episode is an awesome one; you're going to love it. I guarantee it. This is going to be—it's uh, a great episode, and here is why: we have an extensive interview with friend of the show, friend of mine from years gone by, Gary Russell, former Doctor Who magazine editor. Former comic writer, or current comic writer too, as a matter of fact. And uh, somebody who has done an awful lot of work on the Doctor Who animated episodes. Granted, I know that animation is not exactly the same as comics, but it's pretty close. It's like uh, they're siblings. So I wanted to uh, pick his brain about working on the Doctor Who animated stuff. I've been watching quite a few of them lately. I've really been enjoying them. And getting a chance to chat with Gary is always a great time. So we're going to chat with Gary, we'll check out some news, and that's going to make a really good episode, because Gary and I chatted for over an hour. So I think you'll really enjoy it. I'm, I'm hoping that you will, I'm guaranteeing that you'll enjoy his chat, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So, with all that out of the way, let's get into this episode. Um, I'm excited for you to hear the chat with Gary, but first let's get a little bit of news out of the way. Doctor Who comic news for this episode of Panel to Panel. Let's do like we always do and check out new releases. I will start out with saying that the latest Doctor Who magazine, issue number 575, came out over in the UK on the newsstands as well as digitally on Thursday, March 3rd. That was the brand new issue, which has a really good comic strip in it. It's the second part of the uh, comic, and make sure you check that out. Then I'm also going to throw in that uh, this coming Wednesday on March 9th, over here in the U.S., at least the comic book shops, they're going to start kind of getting caught up on Doctor Who magazine physical editions. Uh, Issue number 571 is going to be uh, available at your local comic shop if they ordered it. And that is the issue that came out back in last November. So if you collect the physical Doctor Who magazines over here in the States and you uh, have been wondering where they're at, apparently they're going to start getting them out over here in the States again, make sure you check out issue number 571. Uh, that's kind of it for the all the comics that are out on the horizon. We have uh, Empire of the Wolf just finished up last month from Titan, and we got the special coming out in April from Dan Slott and company. So that's kind of it. But I do want to mention in Doctor Who comic news, uh, talk a little bit about Cutaway Comics. This is the company that are putting out uh, comics that are based in Doctor Who uh, worlds or characters. And Cutaway Comics just got done with a Kickstarter, a very successful Kickstarter, to uh, put out some more comic books. But what I want to mention is that if you haven't been backing their Kickstarters, or if you want to check out what they have available for sale, make sure you go to their website, which is cutawaycomics.co.uk. They have physical copies of their comic books there. They also have a lot of uh, other interesting stuff that they produce in to tie into their comics that they're doing. Uh, one of the things that just came out recently is uh, an Omega CD, where Omega, if you've been reading the comic, you know that Omega is now... Brian Blessed. He is playing the part of Omega. So you get a there's a CD with Brian Blessed doing a reading as Omega which I think is going to be a hoot to listen to. Anyway make sure you check out their website cutawaycomics.co.uk They are running like a freight train nonstop. They have lots of new stuff coming out like I just said they had a successful Kickstarter uh, that just finished. I believe they have another one not too far on the horizon so make sure you check out Cutaway Comics. And I guess that's pretty much it for the news. Let's get into this wonderful interview with Gary Russell. I seem to remember you saying that you had pretty much done all the Doctor Who you thought you were going to be doing.
1: Yeah, I, well, that's absolutely true. <laughs> I, I sort of when I came back from Australia, really, I was quite determined not to do any more Doctor Who of any kind. And then uh-huh. I did a computer game. And I said, that was the last Doctor Who thing I was doing. And then they offered me the chance to do these animations. And I thought, well, that's a bit different. um, And it's animation and it's kind of what I know. Um, So I jumped at them. And that's kept me busy. Yeah. Three years, really. Uh Um, Well, more than three years. I mean, we started we started talking about these. In 2017. Okay. And we started work in 2018 and we actually started animation in 2019. So it's been a long, long process. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's for sure. Actually, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about today was kind
0: of like your your work in animation. Uh, You you and I have had plenty of conversations about comic books, and actually, I'm going to get to that at the end. But I wanted to, to talk to you kind of about how you got started in animation and uh, was real time the the first animation that you
1: did? Yeah, I guess it was. I mean, I don't really think of real time as animation. Um, I'm sure Lee Sullivan would beat me up for saying um, <laughs> it, but that, it's limited uh, it, animation it, it, still. It, but but it still well, kind of it, fits that it's bill. What these days, they'd call a motion comic. Uh huh. Um, and you know, motion comics were all the, the rage for about thirty seconds once. Yeah, um, back, back when Flash think, Player was popular, that's right. But I think Real Time was kind of a, an early because uh, I mean it wasn't. I mean it wasn't made in Flash. Real Time, Oh, was. Oh, okay. Sharda was done in Flash, um, and certainly Shalker was made in Flash. Uh-huh. Um, but I think Real Time was done. It was all done through Real Player, and I don't think it was Flash animation. I think it was just whatever the Real Players sort of. For, I, I don't know, you'd have to ask James Goss that, really. I can't yeah. remember. But uh, yeah, the, uh, that I never think of that as being sort of the start of animation, really, for me. Because from my point of view, with real time, I never need to do with the animation other than A, suggesting Lee for the artist, and B, either coming up with the blue coat or being there when we made the decision to do the blue coat i'm never quite sure whether it was my idea or lee's idea it was probably lee's idea because it was a good one um but beyond that had very little to do with the animation i had saw all the illustrations and and worked with lee on doing the pretty pictures but the putting together of it as an animation was done entirely by james um and the people at bbci which is the same with sharder although i had even less to do with Shada because i wasn't involved in even the pretty pictures part of sharder yeah um that's what i let everyone else do with i said no thank you very much um but yeah real time was i suppose but real time was the first time i could see the potential for marrying up pretty pictures and and audio but then of course you know years later they came along and they did invasion and to me that's the start of it really that's when you sit down and go oh there's real potential doctor who animation has real potential here yeah um because it it does i mean it, it it's a show in any form whether you're doing old stuff like like the invasion or you're doing new stuff like infinite quest and, and dreamland um it's it's a show that says i work really well in animation mm-hmm. um in much the same way as it does with audio it's a, it's a marrying of my my all my favorite things it's animation and audio and doctor who you can't really get much better than that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Pretty pictures, sound, Doctor Who. <laughs> yes, yeah, so like box. Oh, I'll do that, and I'll do that, and I'll do that. Oh, they come together, and they make the word animation.
0: Uh huh. So yeah, it's uh, that I totally agree with you. That's one of the reasons why it, I think it works so well, and it it takes away
1: that budget limitation, just like comic books do. Yeah, yeah but like comic books. There is, you know, there is still a budget limitation. Um, it's just a mm-hmm. different kind of budget limitation. Yeah. It's actually, Bear in mind, animation is one of the most expensive ways of doing entertainment. Budget limitation actually has to be uppermost in your mind the whole time. Um, there's there's far more you can't do in animation than you can do in animation when you're restricted by a budget. Um, yeah. It's much harder to do animation on a low budget than it is to do almost anything else on a low budget. Sure. And these Uh, Doctor Who animations are low budget. (laughs)
0: uh, After the the real time, I know you worked on the Infinite Quest and Dreamland. How did you get involved doing those?
1: Um, Well, I was in Cardiff at the time. I was already working up here for Russell. Mm -hmm. And I think James Goss had suggested to Russell doing an animated doctor who thing in cooperation with doctor who wasn't confidential. It was the kids one. Um, it was just kind of totally doctor really, who thank you. So it was a, it was a working with totally doctor who they wanted to do it. James was okay. in charge of it. Um, and I think, and Russell came to me and said, you know, you should direct all the audio stuff cause obviously, you know, about directing actors and everything. And, I think it was my idea, or maybe it was Russell's idea to have Alan Barnes do it. Maybe, maybe Russell said, do you think Alan Barnes would be good? And I said, yes, I think he'd be brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, so we brought him in as the writer and then it just became working between Alan, me and James Goss um, on scripts and everything. James really dealt with um, Firestep who did the animation. Uh, it was all done in flash. They were the people, they were the new company formed from the ashes of various people who'd worked at Cosgrove Hall on the Invasion. Uh, okay. Uh, so there was some crossover with the Invasion team, not much, but there was a bit of crossover there. Um, uh, John, uh, was, who was the director of, um, the animation for Infinite Quest had been the animation director on Invasion. Uh, John Doyle, brilliant man. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant animation innovator. Um, I always think John Doyle is to British animation, what Dirt Mags is to British audio production. Just okay. a, a sort of um, enfant terrible of it all, really, and, and just wants to shake everything up and, and make everything look interesting and different. And you need people like that, particularly when you're doing Doctor Who. Yeah. So he directed the animation for um, Infinite Quest. I just did the audio. But that said, I kind of got involved all the way down the line with everything that I possibly could because animation fascinated me and it was something I was a fan of. So I uh-huh. went with James up Manchester where the thing was being put together and spent a couple of days with Firestep watching it all being put together and everything so that when it came time to do Dreamland, uh, totally Doctor Who had gone James had gone um, So that became something more To do with the, the BBC's online people They wanted to do Dreamland And so they brought me in on that Again to do the audio But also to co-produce it From an animation point as well So that was me and a lady called Anwen. Um And uh, Anwen Abston and I And we, used, we worked with Russell and Julie And chose the production company That were going to do it we worked with Phil Ford on the script, um, and then Anne's and I just popped up and down to Little Loud, who was the company that did it down in Brighton. Um, and then halfway through that production of Dreamland, CBBC got involved. They'd already, because of Totally Doctor Who, they had done a separate transmission of Infinite Quest as one long forty-minute story. Oh, okay. But they hadn't been completely involved in Dreamland. They were a bit kind of, oh, we'll see how this goes. And then about halfway through Dreamland, they said, no, no, we, will, we do want to show this properly. We don't want it to be an online only thing. You show it in 10 minute segments online. And then when that's all gone out once, we'll do a, a network transmission on CBBC of the whole thing as a 50 minute adventure. Mm-hmm. So they came in. And so we had their input as well, which was frankly invaluable. Um, because uh, they put a lady called Sarah Muller on to it. And Sarah was in charge of animation at Children's BBC. And I learned more in one conversation with her about animation and how to make animation and produce it, I mean. Um, I learned more from her in one conversation in an afternoon's train journey on the way back from Brighton than I had learned in years previously about animation. She was just a powerhouse. Oh, wow um and she basically told us everything we were doing wrong uh uh, which was absolutely necessary because things were going wrong and um I just sat there and listened to her and I went up to her office a few times whenever whenever I could whenever Anne said oh we should have a a chat with Sarah Muller I'd say let's go down to London and actually go and talk to her face to face Because if you do a quick phone conversation, all you're doing is talking about whatever the business you need is. If you go to Mm -hmm. London and you've trekked all the way down there, they kind of, they feel compelled to buy you a cup of tea and actually give you half an hour of their time rather than three minutes. Um, And so I just enjoyed sitting down with Sarah Muller and, and talking nonstop about animation, not just the Doctor Who stuff, but how animation was made all the, the the pre-production stages you go through that we'd kind of bypassed with Dreamland. Um, partly because of budget and partly because we were in a hurry. Um, yeah. and so that became a real learning job for me, dreamland. I'm immensely proud of the finished result. Um, but on a personal level, um, working with Anwin on that and also working with Sarah Muller and learning from Sarah Muller was the most valuable animation experience I've ever had in my life. I think up to that point, I mean, it was just phenomenal. Um, and so, yeah. And so by a strange quirk of coincidence, Although it wasn't Sarah herself, it was someone else in Sarah's office at Children's BBC who saw me talking to Sarah and was the person that recommended me for the job in Australia because by then he'd left the BBC and gone to ABC to run Children's ABC. And so he just remembered me from listening to me talking to Sarah Muller in her office. And so he suggested that I came out to Australia to work with them on Prison Zero, which is really Um, all these things are interconnected.
0: It's amazing how that works out, isn't it? How it just kind of one thing leads into another, into another, and, and I mean, you make I all these connections.
1: I didn't know this until about I've been in Australia for about six months, and I remember saying to Chris, who's this guy for ABC, and why did you want me anyway? And he said, "Oh, well, I saw you whenever you came down to talk to Sarah Muller." He said, "When you were doing Doctor Who," he said, and "I realised that you know, science fiction animation was something that you knew quite well and would get your head around. And I was thinking, "Little do you know," how, until I had those <laughs> conversations there. I knew you'd absolutely bugger all. Um, but you know, so all these things are intertwined and linked. Um, so yeah, it's nice. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, how hard of a process was it to learn animation, or you know, what goes into animation?
1: Oh oh that, that's <laughs> like saying to a uh, someone who does something worthwhile like a plumber or an electrician or something how much how how long did it take you to learn to be a plumber it's like that, that there's no answer to that question um it's a very complicated process and i'm still learning it Now, i've got to tell you i've been working in animation now pretty solidly for over 10 years and i every single day i learn something new about something either technical mm-hmm. or practical, or I finally learned the terminology for when I say things like, you know, that bit where it goes squibbly wibbly in the corner there. And then you learn, there's actually a technical term for squibbly wibbly. And you go, <laughs> Oh, that's what everyone's been talking about for the last 10 years. Uh-huh. That's what that is. Yep. So I was still learning stuff. Now I think with animation and the technology behind animation changes. I mean, when I went to, you know, when we, so when we did this infinite quest, it was done in flash. Mm-hmm. Um, which is now called Adobe Animate, I think. But in those days, it was called Flash. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying it's the same as Flash. Obviously, it's progress. Uh, then when we did uh, Dreamland, it was all in 3D. Um, it was using a game engine. Um, but when I went to do Prisoner's Era in Australia, we were using Toon Boom Harmony. And that's be- sort of become the, the, the industry standard now. You, you either use Toon Boom or use Adobe Animate. So, for instance, I know the team that that did um, Evil of the Daleks and and they did Mac- Terror, They did that in Adobe Animate. Whereas everything okay. I've worked on has always been Toon Boom. So Toon Boom is the only uh, process and software. Well, I don't understand the software. I can't animate to save my life. I mean, it's very important. I can't that. I can't draw. I can't animate. I can't. Even, I can't even draw a straight line with a ruler. Um, so you know that. That's why you have talented people around you, so that reflected glory, everyone goes, oh, Gary Russell's a genius. He knows what he's doing. Totally reflected glory. I know yeah. nothing of what I'm doing. I've just surrounded myself all my life so, with incredibly so having, people. Yeah, it's all about having a great team to make you look good. Yeah, that's right. But they don't realize that, that that's what I'm doing. <laughs> they all think, oh, he really knows what he's doing. And it's uh-huh. just like, no, I don't. I'm just absorbing <laughs> like a sponge everything you people tell me. I So when I was in Australia doing Prison Zero last time we talked, um, I was working in an animation studio. I'd never worked in an animation studio before. I'd never run a business before. I'd never show run a show before. These were all new things to me. Mine was at that point 50-something, 50, 51-something. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone in my studio was between about 18 and 24, with about three or four exceptions. And they knew animation backwards. Uh, and they were nearly all self-taught as well, which was the astonishing thing. And so I was just like a sponge learning all this stuff from these people who were, frankly, young enough to be my kids. Um, And I was kind of, I think, the the grumpy old man sat in the corner telling them what to do. And they all sort of thought, because I was a grumpy old man and British, I think they all thought he must be really smart and know what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. I think it took about six months before they went, oh, He doesn't know anything. He's really stupid and old and grumpy. Um, (laughs) uh, And I was just lucky that I had them around me to make a really damn good TV show for the ABC and Netflix. And um, I just learned so much from them. I would sit and listen to what they were talking about and try not to sort of peer over their shoulder in a kind of I don't understand a word of what that is. I'd peer over the shoulder and go, that's very good. Yes. Do that again. And they go, oh, it's like this problem, when you go, oh, that's what that means. But they all thought I already knew all these technical terms that were coming up. It's brilliant. Uh-huh. So I learned a lot from that. And I learned a lot of what not to do from that. And I learned a great deal about what each individual stage of animation is and what different people's jobs are in animation and how to do it. And therefore, when I came back to the UK, um, I didn't necessarily think I was immediately going to go carry on in animation. I say it took two years, really. Yeah. But when we came to do the Doctor Who stuff, it was really disappointing because having had this, this rare opportunity in Australia to work in a studio environment with 50 animators and, and you know, background artists and, and storyboard artists, plus a production team, suddenly didn't have any of that. We no longer had a studio. We no longer had that staff. Um, so we had to sit down and think, well, we're going to have to start from scratch again, but there's no money in this. You know, the, if you wanted to open a studio, the entire budget for one episode, of few from the deep would have paid for one member of staff's salary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that, that, that went out the window. There was no thought of that. So there's me and a handful of people over in Australia, still the sort of last remnants of what had been planet 55, but was now big finished creative because we renamed the company. Okay. Um, and they were brilliant. They, you know, some really talented people out there. um, and we found an animation studio who were very, very well respected in India to actually do the the, the main work of it all in Toon Boom, and then we had the post production house in Australia that had done Prison Zero. They they did Few from the Deep. Um, so I had that sort of setup, but it was all satellite. You know, I'd, I'd two separate offices I was dealing with in Sydney, oh, one in Sydney and one up on the Central Coast. So they weren't sort of on each other's doorsteps greatly. Plus. Okay the animation studio in india plus my executive co-executive producer mark was based originally in palm springs and then he moved to new york so um i had that time zone so I had one time zone in australia one time zone in india one time zone in in initially palm springs and then new york mm-hmm. and then of course if ever i wanted to have any decision making done i needed to talk to jason hay gallery god knows what country in the world he was going to be in (laughs) one place i could guarantee he was not going to be in was the uk Uh jason and i always have this running joke that in like 20 years 25 years of working with each other the only time we ever see each other is at overseas doctor who conventions yeah we either used to meet up in australia or we'd meet up in america very rarely do we ever see each other in in the uk um I mean, he lives in the same hometown as my mum, which is how I knew Jason in the first place. We never see each other. I went to his wedding last year. and I thought, God, Jason, I said, this is the first time I've actually seen you face-to-face in the UK <laughs> properly, I think. Um, so, you know, we, that was, it, it's a disparate team spread around. And my job, other than creatively to run the Doctor Who stuff, is also to sort of work with everybody. I mean, brilliantly, Mark in America is very placid and very calm and very organisational, far more than I am. Um, And and he's very good at sort of linking everyone together. And when I'm ready to scream and rant and rave and and get on an aeroplane with an axe and, and, and murder lots of people in their sleep, Mark is the one that says, I really don't think you want to do that. I think instead, (laughs) why don't we just ask for that little bit of animation to be tweaked or that little bit of post-production, that that little bit of editing, just move it. He's brilliant like that. He's a, he's, he's a great calming influence and very, very smart. And he kind of, runs as well the business side of it because you know as jason learned when we did prison zero the one thing that he made a mistake was putting me in charge of running one of his businesses i am not a businessman i'm not somebody you say here's the budget Mm -hmm. that's got to last you three and a half years give me a budget that'll last me about three and a half weeks (laughs) uh so so very quickly when we started doing the Doctor Who's, it was yeah we're all putting you in charge of money, Gary. I said like, thank God for that. And Mark and Mark can look after that and worry about cash flows and 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 you know the milestones at which the BBC will give you a drawdown and then you pass that drawdown on to the various other companies we're working. I don't have to worry about any of that. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have to worry about the creative. Um, and so that's what my job was to to creatively run these Doctor Who animations. Sure. Um, the
0: The animation studio in Australia that became, is it part of Big Finish or just a, kind of its own separate entity?
1: When, when it was Planet 55, when we were doing Prison Zero, it was one of mm-hmm. Jason's companies, but it wasn't part of the Big Finish group. As okay. Well as it was. okay, I gotcha. Um, when we'd finished Prison Zero um, and most of the people had separated and Josh was still around and Chloe was still around um that's when we made a decision that it just made more sense going forward just to give it a big finish name so that's when we changed the company name from planet 55 to big finish creative okay um i wanted to call it big finish studios but in between coming up with that idea and jason agreeing it he called another part of big finish Big Finish Studios who weren't a studio. Yeah, why don't you let be called a studio? But then I came up with Big Finish Creative and I thought, all that sounds dynamic. Yeah. Um and and again, you know, being BFC is different from being big finish production, so we're not mixed up with the audio crowd and yep. all of Jason's eight hundred and fifty thousand other big finishes. Um so yeah, we became Big Finish Creative, I think sure. in twenty seventeen, I think. Okay. Makes total sense. Then then, how did uh, Big Finish Creative get involved in doing the Doctor Who animated? So I'm sitting here exactly, I can tell you, I'm sitting exactly where I'm sat talking to you at the moment. And I received a text on my phone from Pete McTighe, uh, okay. who we know as the writer of Kablam and things like that. Uh-huh. And he, Pete, Pete had moved to Cardiff shortly after I got back, and it said to me, I think he moving to Cardiff. So we went house hunting together for him. So we've been mates for a few years. Um, I I got to know Pete really when he was doing Neighbours. um, And I was totally enthralled by the fact that I knew a person who was writing on Neighbours while I was in Australia. (laughs) Ah! Uh Um, And he texted me and said, Russell Minton, who is in charge of the Blu-ray box sets, is currently sat in my living room and wants to talk to you. And I went, oh, that's nice. He said, that's a hint. Would you like to come round for a <laughs> cup of tea now? OK. Uh-huh. So I walked round to Pete's, because he's like three minutes walk away from my front door, um, and met Russell for the first time. And Russell said, we're thinking of restarting the animations. And he knew I'd been involved in Moonbase. Um, okay. And he knew I'd be involved in Infinite Quest and, and and Dreamland. And I said, look, I've got to tell you, I you know, yes, I have my name as associate producer on the end of the moon base the fact is i arrived the month before they finished doing moon base and all i had to do on moon base was say to a very exhausted tired team at planet 55 who'd been working on it for every year just these two episodes and they were absolutely dog tired i just came in and chivied them up and got it finished i didn't actually do anything creative particularly with moon base i just I think my my sole contribution to the creativity of Moonbase was to say to them all, oh, I wish those tubes and little balls on the side men's arms and elbows were more uniform and they feed all that. That's my sole contribution to the Moonbase, <laughs> other than getting uh-huh. it finished and actually making sure it got done and 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 delivered. Um because Austin and 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 uh his team were really very, very exhausted. I think they'd been ground down by by the previous m- russell's predecessors in overlooking Great. everything dr yeah. dvd related yep. who had long long since gone but i think there'd been quite a lot of tension and, and fracar between them and, and austin and the planet 55 team so i just came in with the end of moon base and just basically said let's get it finished and we did mm-hmm. but so i said to russ you know i don't my background really is he said oh you know you know more about Doctor animation than anyone else in this room at the moment oh well that's fair enough and he said, we've been talking to we, Charles Norton's team are going to be doing something. They'd done Dad's Army mean, they'd just done Power of the Daleks. Uh, it hadn't come out at that point, but okay. they were working on it. He said, and we want to start this up again. And so we want a second team. I said, well, this is great. Um, so uh, we had a little chat about what they wanted and how they wanted to do it. Um, and the first story we were talking about was Macro Terror. And I said, I'd love to do Macro That would be absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. So I came home and I phoned Jason and said, Hey, do you fancy doing more Doctor Who animations? Because obviously Jason had been involved with, with Moonbase and yeah. 55. Yeah. And he was like, No, I don't ever want to go to that again. <laughs> I said, All those people are gone. That's a whole new team. Um, and we'll get more money out of them. Uh, and he <laughs> literally <laughs> realized what a lie that was. Um, anyway. So Jason was on board and Josh, who was still running the company over in Australia, was on board because it was automatically we were going to do it with them. Um, and so we we probably for about three months, we ummed and I had a couple of meetings up at the BBC with, with Russell and, and Paul Hembree, his boss. Um, and anyway, they said, will you go off and do Macroterra?" I think by this point, Charles had actually delivered, Power of the Daleks it might even have come out because bless them they had to get that done and on sale so fast um, mm-hmm. so I started doing Macro and we did some test animation for Macro Um, I worked, did all the script work on it and everything I had it all prepped and prepared as to how I was going to do it and then I got a phone call from Russell and he said change of plan um, Charles's team are actually going to do Macroterra." I was like great Thanks. <laughs> Three months' work wasted. Yep. And he said, Well, I think you'll be happy. I'd like you to do dialect master plan. And I was like, Oh yes. Oh wow. So suddenly I'd all automatically forgotten about it. It's like MacroTerra never happened. <laughs> and I was very excited for Dalek Master Plan. And I talked again to the Australian team and I said, oh, Dalek Master Plan, this would be fantastic. And for about six days, we were very excited to be doing dialect master plan. And then I went down to the BBC for a meeting. I think Jason was with me at that point. And, and they said, yeah, we're not doing that on a passive plan. I was like, oh, don't <laughs> tell me you've been that to Charles Steve as well. And they went, no. And that's when I learned that their choice of what they were doing for these animations basically came from Mark Ayres because they'd said to Mark, what are the best ones audio-wise? What's got the best audio quality? Because they oh, should okay. be the first batch we do. And Mark had said... And this was absolutely right. He said, Darnamous sound would be a fantastic animation. The sound quality is desperately dire. Um, I, no no amount of anything I do can make the master plan soundtrack sound any better than it does at the moment on that CD with Peter Purvis, and and it's the worst soundtrack of them all. Uh, he said the quality is just not good enough for animation, certainly won't be good enough for what BBC America want, which is to be able to show it on TV and show it in cinemas. He said it's just not broadcast quality. So master plan straight out the window. Um, and that's when they said to me and Jason, but well, one thing Mark says we should do, well, they, in fact, they told us all of the things we were going to do, which was Abominable Snowmen, Galaxy 4, Evil of the Daleks, Faceless Ones, Macro and few from the Deep. Okay. And when they said that, all I was thinking was, that I wanted to do macro Terror. I'd quite like to do the Abominable Snowmen, but the one, the two things I desperately don't want to do is Galaxy Four and Feud from the Deep. And he said, Why don't you want to do Galaxy Four? and I said, Galaxy Four is just terrible, and few from the Deep. I said, The problem is, it's such a popular story that doesn't exist. Everyone has a vision of it in their mind yeah. as to how yep. brilliant it's going to be. I said, and I remember going through the Tomb of the Cybermen thing, where we all were led to believe that Tomb of the Cybermen was the greatest four-part Doctor Who story in history, and then it got found.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we went, oh, the first 20 minutes of Tomb of the Cybermen are brilliant, and then the rest of Episode 1 and Episodes 2, 3, and 4 are actually quite shit, and yeah. they're not brilliantly made, and it is all a bit, and that final episode is a bit of a damn squib on the whole thing. And you just realize that people's uh, expectations and over the years, people have accepted to the Submen*, and actually think it's really quite good now. But when it first came back, there was that awful kind of, oh, my God, this is nowhere near as good as we thought. So when they yep. said do few from the deep, all I could think was, no, because everyone's going to have an expectation for food from the deep. And we can't match that. We can't meet that. And it's just it's it's. You're being set up for failure with.
0: Yeah, it's it's awfully hard because to look everyone to people thinks people's it's fantastic. Mm-hmm.
1: It isn't that fantastic, you know. It's very yeah. overboated story. It's very repetitive. The same thing happens every two and a half episodes. It would have made a very good four-parter, but it, it's too long for a six-parter. But anyway, we got few from the deep. So I said, fine, great, that's fantastic. Plans to be really enthusiastic about it and then had to come home and find that enthusiasm in myself to go right what am i going to do with that well uh-huh. obviously it's going to be color because the decision had been made to do macro tear already in color whereas power of the dials had only been black and white so it's going to be a color and black and white versions that really appealed to me um and i just came home and got really fired up with enthusiasm for it watched the handful of clips that existed, read the script a few times, started making little notes, scribbling ideas for myself about how I'd make the sets bigger, how I would do... The the first thing I came up with really, which actually wasn't me, it was my friend Giles, who was originally our concept designer, Um, At the very beginning, though, he didn't actually work on the finished thing. But he he did a sketch of Robson being turned into the seaweed monster. And that was the pinnacle for me. I thought that now I'm fired up with enthusiasm because now I can see what I want to do with this. I want to make it a British horror story. This this needs to look like Quatermass, not Doctor Who. And so that's what I did with that, really. Um, And we were very lucky and we did the whole thing in sixteen nine. We did the whole thing in colour. We knew we were going to do a black and white version as well. And it wasn't until probably a third of the way into Furious Team. I think I'd probably done episode one and I was at a meeting at the BBC and Anne-Marie, who was doing faceless ones, Charles had done um, Macro Terror, handed faceless ones over to Anne-Marie and she kind of took over that, that, that company. And we were sat there in this room talking about it with a load of various people from different departments of the BBC. And someone said, not unfairly, are you doing this in 69 or 4.3? And Amory and I both looked at each other and we went, we've done them in 69. Uh-huh. They went, oh, I think we should do them in 4.3 as well. And they looked at me and went, it doesn't matter for a few from the deep, there aren't any existing episodes for people to branch off into They'll yeah. only watch the animation but with this yeah. one you've got two episodes that exist. people might want to only watch the animated episodes and the ones in between uh-huh. and we made this decision that we had, nevertheless we would always animate complete stories where there was more than 50 percent missing so if you had a four-parter with two episodes you'd only animate the missing two episodes but anything more than that You'd animate the whole yeah, show.
0: Totally so okay.
1: They were already animating the whole show, Fury, any, uh, Faces ones anyway. Um, yeah. We were actually watching episode one of Faces ones as we were talking about this. And so the decision was made that if there was an existing episode, then you would have to make a 4.3 version as well. And So your color would be 69, but your black and white would be 4.3. And I was lucky because we were I was going, I can't redo few from the deep at this stage into a 4-3. We've made the whole thing completely widescreen. And Anne-Marie said she would go back and look at what they'd done with faceless ones and do a little bit of moving around and she could make a 4-3. And that's where the thing of doing 4-3 for black and white and 16 of colour came from. Originally, okay. everything's just going to be 16 whether it's black and white or colour. And I was lucky through from the deep that we didn't have to do a 4-3 and, and if one day I have it at the back of my head, I wouldn't mind doing a 4.3 version now of Fear from the Deep and seeing what I could do with it, because I think it could possibly be better. There's something about the black and when you look at a Doctor Who animation in black and white, it works in 4.3 better than it is. Color works in 69 and doesn't work in 4.3, but black and white works in 4.3 really well because it feels very 60s and very claustrophobic. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it, it gives me, it takes me back to that era. But it does mean, from an animation point of view, so this didn't affect Fury, but affected Galaxy 4 and Web of Fear and with Snowmen, is that you are suddenly working in a 16.9 environment, but you're try- focusing everything with four, three, you have four, three bars on the screen, and yeah. you're making sure everything fits in there for the eventual four, three version. And that does make it very difficult sometimes where people just have a hand gesture or something like that and it goes outside and you're sending notes to the animators in India going, no, you have to change that because his hand's gone outside the 4-3. And you're dealing with an animation studio in India where everyone, again, is probably between 18 and about 30 because, you know, the world is run by kids these days. (laughs) I call them kids because I'm an old, grumpy old man. Um, (laughs) They've never heard of 4-3 they don't know what 4-3 is they don't even know what black and white is they certainly don't know what 4-3 is mm-hmm. um so to suddenly put that restriction on them is quite hard because you got you have to constantly say no think 4-3 think 4-3 then we don't know what 4-3 means <laughs> um the other thing you have of course with with people is that these people are used to doing things like rick and morty and and normal modern kids animation really well all kids animation all animation really around the world these days no one is doing realistic characters everything's slightly exaggerated Mm -hmm. you're either doing really cartoon exaggerated or you're doing slightly so even if you're doing a basic look at this is meant to be vaguely human heads are usually too big for the bodies eyes are usually very big there's a limited amount of expressions they usually give people very long necks and very long arms yeah. so Because that's more expressive in animation. That That's how animation storytelling works. You go in and say, no, everything's got to be properly human proportioned with correct walking, correct scaling against backgrounds. Everyone, You've got to have a height chart and everything's got to stick to it. All your backgrounds have got to make sense. If someone walks slightly at an angle out of one shot, they've got to continue that angle on the next shot, even though the background's slightly different and that's been reangled. All of these things are not things that modern animation studios are used to dealing with. Um, and so that's been a real eye opener for me is, is just seeing and enjoying watching these young animators in India learn the processes from, from 30 or 40 years ago yeah. and, and grasping it with both hands and really enjoying having the challenge of doing something they have no training in whatsoever. Um, Cause most modern animation doesn't give a crap about continuity between shots. They don't really care if, someone was looking three quarters off screen at the end of shot 32 and the start of shot 33, they're looking in profile. Mm-hmm. But for doctor who you have to, you have to pretend it's live action. So you have to make everything match. That's, that's quite a complicated struggle. Yeah. And that adds, <laughs> as I've learned that adds quite a few months to the schedule of something. <laughs> that's totally um, understandable. You have to put the
0: like uh regular filming parameters onto animation
1: Yes, like it, and yet, working with yeah, with live action spoil the fact that this is animation and it is different from live action and it is being made in 2022. So you've yeah. got this this sort of schizophrenic sort of you've got one foot in 1967 and another foot in 2022 and you're trying to marry the two together and you've also got at the back of your head that you've got a very vocal fan base that who, whose first reaction because they're Doctor Who fans is to go I haven't seen it yet but it's shit um and then when they've seen it i've seen it once it's still shit and then six months later go actually it's not that bad is it we yeah we we, now we've got used our heads around it and you you prepare yourself for that and i've been in doctor who fan long enough that that water off a duck's back to me but all my other teams i was constantly having to say to them don't read reviews don't go online don't go on twitter and facebook don't go and explore reviews of of *Fury from the deep or weather fear or even galaxy four I said, because they're, we're fans and our mission in life is to destroy everything rather than praise it. Because yeah. it's easier to be negative than positive. I said, if you take anything on board from what they say, you'll never want to work again. Um, I said, what you do is you wait six or eight months and then you go and see it. I said, what, what you really want to do is not watch any reviews of Fury, but wait until... Even the Daleks comes out, and then see the reviews of Fury. I said because by that time enough time has passed, and something else shiny has come along for everyone to get cross about, and and you know that's that's how fandom works. Whether it's yep. Doctor Who, Star Trek, Star Wars, or I don't know, Abba fandom. <laughs> you know, it, it, something that's new is going to be hated until the next thing comes along, so that everyone can vent about that, and then with the passage of time, you become classic vintage and bearable with um so trying to teach everyone that it doesn't matter what people say the only people that counter the bbc is quite hard in an industry like all television where they're used to looking at reviews of things and being told how brilliant they are uh-huh. and then they meet doctor who fans who go <laughs> oh crap um so yeah, that that's been quite an exciting adventure. Yeah. So we uh, did Fury. We got Fury out the way. Halfway through uh, Fury, this little thing called COVID happened, um, and that set us back quite badly. India was very, or still is very badly hit by COVID. Three years on, or two years on, um, so that that slowed us down. And then we did Galaxy Four and the Snowman, and they've all been affected in India by the COVID thing. Whereas yeah. Web of Fear, we didn't do through India. Web of Fear was done solely by our post-production team. Um, so they did that all in Australia. Okay. Uh, so they were affected, obviously, by COVID as well, but nowhere near as badly.
0: Yeah. Uh, when, when you were working on Fury from the Deep, uh, as production went along and you started seeing bits and pieces of animation come through, how did that help... Uh, increase your enthusiasm for look what we can do look oh, what
1: yeah. the, the possibilities second, are down the road episode every time a shot came in i'd be going oh that's how we can do that oh we could do something else with that then couldn't we oh we can add some effects that oh that's going to be really good the drawbacks of the way animation works particularly 2d frame by frame is you're not seeing anything in sequence
0: yeah
1: because you know they have an animation team there of about i think it's about 20 or oh, maybe 25 people working on it And they go, this group of people have only been in the industry for a year. So you'll do what they call the easy shots. You've been in the industry for two years. You could have the medium shots. You've been in the industry for five years. You can have all the really hard shots to do. So when it's coming through to myself and Chloe to to look at and approve and sign off on, we're seeing one shot the last five seconds and another shot the last 13 seconds and another shot that lasts four and a half seconds but they're all from various different parts of the episode. Yeah. There's nothing consecutive. So we, as we're doing this, is after about the first month of an episode, Chloe and I then create what we call a running edit, which is basically we, create, we, we go back to the animatic and we split it into individual shots and then rejoin it uh, so that we can drop those from our, our sheet every time a new piece of animation comes in and replace the animatic with a piece of animation. Okay. Then uh-huh. you replace it with a replacement animation. Then you replace it with the animation and the background's been dropped in and so on and so forth. So you build up this timeline as we're going along and then you start seeing things saying, oh, that thing that we approved four months ago, we'll have to unapprove because actually the continuity doesn't match the two shots either side of it because we didn't see these two shots till now and that one was done yeah. at the beginning of the production. So you have all of that to contend with. Um, and you're usually, by the time you get to, like, let's take as an example episode four of Abominable Snowmen. So at the time when we were doing our work on Abominable Snowmen episode four animation, we'd finished episode one, so that was in post-production, so we were looking at post-production on that. We were still having the last few shots of episode two, quite a lot of episode three, and the start of episodes five and six, all every single day coming in. And so you're bouncing around from different episodes the whole time. The only time you ever only ever have one episode at a time to deal with is the start of episode one and the end of episode six. Every Mm -hmm. other time you're doing multiple episodes at the whole time at either stages of animation or post-production. So it's it's hectic. And for me, it's a seven day a week job because of the overseas stuff. Um, And I generally work from seven in the morning till about two in the afternoon. And then I start again about six and I work till about eight. And then I'll work again from about 10 p.m. to one in the morning. And I'm doing that seven days a week, which is why it kills me. Um, And I should be quite glad when it's all over. (laughs) Um, But it's it's an exciting process to watch these things come together and to see everybody's contribution, because it isn't just the animation, which is brilliant. But that's only the start of it because then it goes to post production. So they do the they do the edit, then they do the grading, then they add any special effects in, then they do the whole mastering of everything and adding in the title and opening and closing credits. And then when we've signed off on the color sixteen nine, we start again and we go back and we do the four three black and white version. Um and so, you know, that's just this constant evolving thing. So, yes, yeah. the animation is fantastic and important and beautiful, but that's still only half the job. Then all the things that can be added in post-production, you know, the tiny little lighting effects, tiny little shadows or grades and things like that, sure. just to make the whole thing come to life is phenomenal and makes a huge difference. Um, you know, and the team in India, when they see a finished episode, look at it and go, we don't recognise that because we saw it on flat color the whole time. And yeah. now you're seeing it with, you know, stick a bit of parallax or something into the middle of it. And it just lifts the whole thing beautifully. Um, that's a beautiful, lovely, lovely moment of, of beautiful parallax in, in the last episode of galaxy four where, um, uh, Jeff Garvey's lying on the ground on, on, um, what that? on Kemble, mm-hmm. And the cow- camera pushes towards him and the leaves and everything go back behind the camera. Um which of course this is 2D animation or 3D animation. That's parallel. That's a beauty of camera, and that's all done in post-production. Then the camera goes up and looks into the sky, and the leaves come down off the trees and come towards the camera. And moments like that, they look fantastic in the 2D animation. But once the post-production house got hold of them, they suddenly come absolutely to life. And it's just it's just a wonderful to work with all these different teams around the world um and basically again i get reflected glory from their talent because i can't do any of it Uh uh-huh i just sit here having the headaches of trying to meet deadlines and (laughs) getting frowny phone calls from from russell minton occasionally going how many months late is it now Uh, oh russell you finish next week
0: (laughs) how much longer is it going to take
1: my nose is getting longer um but, yeah, it's 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 been a fantastic three years, three and a half years process of getting, you know, Fury, Web of Fear, yeah. Galaxy 4, and now Abominable Snowmen together.
0: Well, I, I know myself as well as many Doctor Who fans out there were were sad to hear that it looked like it was, the animations have come to an end, at least for now, due to the BBC America pulling its funding.
1: Um, how, I don't think how, I, I, I think people people seem to have decided that it's BBC America's fault. I'm not convinced that that anyone's ever said that. I think fans have decided that's the problem. Okay. Um, I don't know whether it is the problem or not because you know decisions like that. Yeah, so that's a BBC decision, not a big finish decision, and um, way above my pay grade. Um, yes, it is disappointing that there aren't any on the horizon at the moment, but you know. Look at the gap there was between the invasion and then uh, what was the one that came off? Reign of Terror, I suppose, was the next one after that. And then it was 10th Planet and Moonbase. Yeah. So, the, you know, they they were, that, that that was a 10-year period mm. just to get those. Then there was a gap at the end of Moonbase. Moonbase was 2013, 14. And mm. then Power of the Daleks was 2017 or 2018. You know, it's like yeah. the, the history of the animations has been there have been gaps. So that when we started our little art, the commission was that they had power of the Daleks and then they commissioned another six and those six have been done. Plus web of fear got thrown in as well. Mm-hmm. Um So, you know, we knew right from the outset that that's all we were commissioned to do was, was three each from those six. Yeah. Um well, So, yeah, I, we, we've, I, we've... I,
0: with, with the, the, the box sets or the seasons coming out, I, I think that there's still plenty of hope that the animations will continue on as they start getting to doing the Blu-ray releases of those seasons where those stories.
1: Yeah. Except what you've got to bear in mind, they will always have to have an individual release. I think before you, you're not going to ever see it. My gut feeling is unless the budgeting world changes and money is suddenly worth a lot less. Um, (laughs) You're never going to see an animation that is commissioned solely for the Blu-rays. Just due to because the the budget for the, the, budget the animation. For yeah, yeah. The, the the budget for the animations has to be split between your, your your standard DVD, your standard Blu-ray, and your Steelbook. Um, and then you've got your over BBC America. So that that's your first bite of the cherries. All of those, and then in a few years' time, you've got a Blu-ray box set you can drop for you from the deep or Faces ones or whatever onto. Um, and, and so, you know, a little bit of the budget comes from that forward thinking. Yeah. But it's a very small part of the budget. And then occasionally you can also turn around and go, oh, there's Brit box or whoever might show these things one day. Um, and they might pay tuppence hate me towards it, but really and truly when you consider what the budget of those Blu-ray box sets is for them to then be able to afford to animate an entire missing story. And, you know, when you get to a season three or season four box set at this stage, you're not animating one missing story. You're animating most (laughs) of the bloody season. You know, that ain't going to happen. So I think, you know, if animations were to continue, they will always have to be done as a standalone release first. And then they'll turn up years later on a Blu-ray box set. And I would suspect, if I'm honest, thinking about the way the world works, the chances of getting everything animated before Blu-ray box sets come out I think is quite unlikely. So I think that if there was an ideal world and the animations were to continue, I would imagine there'd be some stories that don't get animated until after the box sets come out anyway. And then they'll get pressed on lovely little shiny discs that replicate the Blu-rays so that you can literally take them out of your Blu-ray packet and slot it into the Blu-ray box set and throw away the original.
0: Um... Kind, and of, they, kind of like the uh, the the James Bond 50th anniversary yes. uh, Blu-ray set that came out. Leave this yeah, spot the spot for the next movie that's coming it. out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, that that would be my gut feeling because I can't see, bearing in mind the speed with which these Blu-ray box sets are coming, I can't see how, unless there were 10 companies doing these animations and money was no object, I mm-hmm. can't see how you'd have everything done. Um, sure. And, and, you know, also, I can't see... I can't honestly see the BBC saying, hey, let's pay to animate two episodes of The Underwater Menace and put that out as a separate release when it had a separate release five years ago Um, so we can have it on a box set. You know, my money, and this is my opinion, I don't know this at all, but my money would be on The Crusade and Underwater Menace as the only two stories where 50% is missing that they won't see animation. I think they'll end up being tally snaps on the any Blu-ray box sets. Okay. Um, if I assume there are going to be Blu-ray box sets of the sixty stuff, I I think it would yeah. be mad if they, they weren't any. No one's ever said there are, but fairly can't help thinking. Well, you've done these animations. You've got to get some more money back somehow. So I think you know blu rays yeah. and blu rays of the sixty stuff will come eventually. But uh, those are the two stories I think would be almost dead cert not to get animated or no one's going to rush to get those four episodes animated just for the blu-ray box set because the blu-ray box set couldn't afford it and i don't think you could reasonably do a separate standalone release for for certainly not underwater menace anyway um because it's awful um (laughs) you know but maybe three years after a blu-ray box set's come out someone might animate it and then you could slip it into your blu-ray box set maybe Yep, definitely um, yep, totally good. But that's just that's just my gut feeling. Bearing in mind how much other stuff is out there that still needs animating, yeah. Um, which, as I say, is a great deal of episode uh, of season three, and great deal of season four. Season six, you only need to do space pirates. Season one, you only need to do Marco Polo. Um, so you know, conceivably, they could possibly be done as standalone releases. Before a a box set. Before the box set comes out. But the others, I think you'd be releasing a Blu-ray box set without entire animated seasons, and maybe those animations would have to come later. I just Mm -hmm. can't see conceivably with the schedule they've got that animation could be done in time, frankly, for for much else. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Season three is going to be nearly Doctor Who the cartoon season because there's so little of season Mm -hmm. three that really exists um season four's a bit better but not much five five we pretty much oh we've done no no one's done wheel in space have they so they need to do wheel in space so they can release season five box set yeah so yeah if you wanted one 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 five and six each of those will only take one story to animate that i think is quite conceivable if they these animations continue yep. three and four that's a bit more of a bugger to do and yep. two obviously the only thing Missing from there is um, those two episodes of the Crusade. Everything else exists in season two. Yep. Uh, and as I say, I just don't think they'll do them. So I think, you know, uh, I would expect if there was a potential season two box set that'll have telly snaps, not animation on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, well, and, you know, I've enjoyed the animated releases. In fact, over here in the States, we still have uh, Galaxy 4 to come out. And I can't remember if Abominable Snowman has come out yet. No, I hope not. We haven't finished it. So. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's right. That'd be why I haven't made it
1: yet. Yeah, I'm, I, um, I know I just what I I, think I is I got interesting. my pre order for Yeah, go ahead. And your well, your pre order, I think, for Galaxy 4 is Blu ray, isn't it? Yes, it
0: is. There was no uh, DVD. There's pre-order. no DVD.
1: Whereas all the previous ones, there's been no Blu ray and just DVD. Yeah, which I found it, it's going to totally bother me you when you I put animation? them on my shelf. You know, you've got animation that's made in 2K, so it's designed for Blu ray, and BBC America only put them out on DVD. Uh-huh. That seems weird. And then for Galaxy 4, they swap it and go, We won't bother with DVD. We'll go straight for Blu ray that you've never done before. Yeah. Um, you know, and all the Doctor Who fans like me who are completists going, Ah, they won't match on my shelves.
0: Uh huh. I have exactly um, that way. It's bugging me even without looking at my shelf. I know, I know. it's going to bother I me when I Why that don't up?
1: they think of these things? Or at least put them in <laughs> DVD sized boxes, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. So it'll all match so, up. So
1: all our OCD doesn't go, ah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's carried on to my daughter. She's going to look at that. she's She doesn't watch Doctor Who, but it's going to bother her if the cases don't match.
1: Yeah, I, it bothers me. I, every time I look <laughs> at my Doctor Who sets, I'm going, all you had to do was put bloody Blu-rays in, this, in a DVD-sized box. It could be blue, but it yep. needed to be that size so that when you've got them side on and you're looking at the spines, you don't go, DVD, DVD, Blu-ray, DVD, DVD, Blu-ray,
0: Blu-ray. Yep. So... Well, uh, you know, I've I've totally enjoyed the animated uh, stories, and I bought them as they all come out, and I enjoy watching them. But and Thank you. Uh, uh, we enjoy I making I, them. Oh, I'm 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 bet I'm sure, especially for someone like you that I'm you know you've seen a lot of the original stories. Yeah, I'm that old. <laughs> no, yeah. I wasn't trying Thank to you. say that.
1: No, no, no. no. But, no you all, oh, you <laughs> so were, you so I,
0: were. i I'm, I'm 51. I'm old enough as it is.
1: No, but <laughs> Fury from the Deep, I, I got quite clear memories of as a kid. Um, bizarrely, Abominable Snowmen, when we were doing the scripts and everything for that, I was it. Going, I don't, I have vague memories of Abominable Snowmen. But I think as a kid, I've sort of merged them into Web of Fear a lot of it. Um, whereas Fury from the Deep, absolutely vivid memories of. Evil of the Daleks, absolute vivid memories of. Ice mm-hmm. Warriors, absolute vivid memories of. But the two yeti stories, I think, as a kid, uh, kind of blurred into one, um, and I obviously yeah. I had clearer memories of Webber of Fear than I do of Bomber Snowman. Um, there were things that I thought I remembered from Bomber Snowman, and then Webber Fear turned up, and we all watched it on shiny disc. And I went, "Oh, I thought that was from Bomber Snowman." Just that uh-huh. shot of a, a a sphere, or that shot of a yeti roaring, which in my kid's memory. Was from Bond or Snowman and clearly wasn't. It was from Web of Fear. So I'm not, I don't think I've got, I mean, obviously I saw it, but I don't think I've got very many memories of Bond or Snowman. But it's my favorite of the animations we've done um, because it's such a good story. It's, it's the, I, I think with Enemy of the World, it's the only six part Trout possibly the only six part black and white story which has no repetitive, no running around, no padding every single second of the story is telling a story and it's progressive and you get to the end of episode six and you go, wow, that is a fantastic story. And for me, Abominable Snowman and Enemy of the World are the only two that do that. Where you don't sit there and go, oh, they ran out of story ideas halfway through this. Uh Uh, And it's beautiful because of that. I've got to say, I fell in love eventually with Galaxy 4. I didn't want to do it at all um, because it's a terrible, terrible, terrible script. I mean, it's just appalling. And we, we turned it into this sort of Technicolor 1960s episode of Star Trek. And once I realized that was my way into that story was to go, OK, we go full on pulp for this. Yeah. Then uh, suddenly Galaxy 4 came to life for me and I thought, this is great. This is this is silver blonde women clad in tight clothing with big guns, gave them some go go boots, um, tromping around on a red planet um with stupid robots you know it's just uh-huh. like yeah actually this is now an enormous amount of fun um but i remember when i read the script and listened to the audio i was thinking oh no this is this is all i mean <laughs> the the curse you have with these animations we have it to some extent with the born of snowman as well is where there are huge swathes of silence or just a sound effect going on and you're going not only am i not quite sure what's going on there but i've got to fill that with animation that moves yeah and you know, that's tricky. A Bottom no man's very hard for that because it's a quite so ponderous story in a lot of places, particularly all the stuff inside Padme's Ambivar Sanctum, where everyone is just walking from one side of the room to the other with their head bowed in silence. Mm-hmm. And you go, that works on television in 1967 when the pace moved at that. But you try animating that and making that look good, and it doesn't. It looks... It's icky because what you want to do is go oh come on go faster it's animation more more action human body live action has has you know body language and people give looks and there's lighting you can do and all the and animation doesn't have that and therefore tomney walking from the altar to the door in episode two of bumble snowmen is is you know the longest piece of television in the
0: <laughs> universe for me. it's an awfully long um,
1: it's like it's probably only 23 seconds. It feels like 23 minutes. And you just go, why couldn't something interesting have happened? And we had the same thing in uh, Galaxy 4 where the start of episode 4, the soundtrack is just a chumbly making beepy noises. Uh-huh. And we knew that what happens is there's a Dravin slowly following it around and then eventually beats it on the head with a stick. And so we had to create that entire sequence and make it mysterious and everything, which, you know, in... Lime Grove in 1965 probably looked pretty shit. And my main philosophy is you're not trying to make animation. We know it looks shit in 1965. So your animation has to make it not look shit because yeah. you don't want to repeat something and just go, Oh, we're just drawing this. So it looks as crap as it did back then. You're kind of trying to do what you think they would have wanted to do if they had that budget. Yeah. Um, if they had that freedom, that ability to be in a studio bigger than Lime Grove. So that's my philosophy behind the whole thing, is is going, what would they have wanted to do in 1965? I'm not trying to pretend we made it in, they made it in 2022. But if yeah. they just didn't have those restrictions in 1965, their sets would have been bigger, their mo- moments would have been bigger, their their colours would have been brighter. So that's been my philosophy with the animations all the way down the line, is you're just trying to extrapolate what they would have liked to have done in in the 1960s that they couldn't. I'm sure. not trying to make this uh, an episode of Animaniacs, you know, or I'm not trying to yeah. make this an episode of Star Trek Prodigy where you can do anything. God, I think Prodigy is the best thing in the history of the world at the moment. And I'm so jealous, you know, what, <laughs> the, first, the first, the first 30 seconds of an episode of Prodigy is the entire budget for six episodes of Few from the Deep. Yeah. Um, I'm so jealous of them for that. But, <laughs> You know, I'm not trying to match that. I'm not trying to pretend that that's what we're doing with it. I'm just trying to extrapolate what they would have done in the 1960s if they could have made and they could have made it brighter and more colorful. Mm -hmm. And That's all we do with the animations, really. Sure. Yeah,
0: that makes makes total sense. Um, But yeah, I've enjoyed the animations. Um, I I can't let you or let a conversation with you end without talking comics. Um, Fine by me. <laughs> uh, Cutaway Comics. Um, yes. I see that you possibly, I'm putting that in air quotes. Uh, will no, be no, doing it's been
1: announced. It's been announced.
0: It, it, well, it's part of the of the uh, the funding for this the current campaign. So supposedly, if they don't get that yeah, much money, I- it's not going to come out. Issue but.
1: zero is part of that, but then there'll be a separate okay. project Inferno. So, yeah, Inferno. So, so
0: how did you get involved with Cutaway? I'm, I'm guessing that you've known I, Gareth for a while.
1: I've known Gareth for far more years than, than I care to remember because <laughs> we we probably first met up when he was starting up VORP VORP if indeed we actually possibly met before he started up VORP VORP. Okay. Um, and so we've been friends ever since. And I was very keen on his cutaway comics idea when he, he we talked about it once. He said he was setting this thing up and I was very excited. Uh-huh. Um, and as it grew and grew and grew, I can't... <laughs> He came to me. I didn't go to him. I didn't say I'd really love to do something. He came to me one day and said, would you like to do something with us? And it was around that time that I was going, I don't want to do anything more to do Doctor Who. Okay. Um, And I think initially I went, and then I thought, well, do you know what? It's not Doctor Who. I mean, it is, Mm. but it's got that exciting challenge of being everything other than there's no Doctor, there's no TARDIS. You're finding an interesting story to tell without being able to rely on the get out clauses of the doctor and the TARDIS and suddenly Uh that seemed very interesting so we batted a few ideas around over the last couple of years um and it was him I mean he knew I loved Inferno he's my all-time favorite Doctor Who story and he said look I'm going to go and talk to Don Houghton's people um and see if we can get Inferno Mind of Evil and I immediately said, well, you just don't do it separately. that That's a combination. That's a post-Inferno combination sitting there yelling at you. Yeah. Um, and I said, and I vaguely know Sarah, Don and Pixim's daughter, um, because she was in an episode of Sarah Jane Adventures, and we talked about her dad at the time, because I met and interviewed Don many, many, many hundreds of years ago. Okay.
0: Um,
1: so Gareth went in and said, you know, that, it was going to be me doing this and, and, and they've been so brilliant and so welcoming and so absolutely positive towards this project. Um, So, yeah, so I've been working on this now for, I think probably six to eight, about six months now. It's been, I mean, (laughs) unfortunately, Dravins and Yeti have completely gotten in the way of doing this at a, at a sensible timescale, but that's worked out quite well for Gareth. Because actually, once we worked out when this lot the animation was going to start winding down, he could say, right, well, I'll do this in 2023, so we need to back it up a bit, so we need to announce it in 2022. We need, to, And I said, I, the, doing an issue zero was my idea, and he said, we'll use that as a Kickstarter. And yeah. um, I was, yeah, that's great, we'll do that. So it's, it, there's the issue zero, which is totally exclusive to the Kickstarter. Um, and then there'll be four four part mini series over the next couple of years. Oh wow. Um it's a big project. He's he's given me he's really treating me like a god at the moment, which is both flattering and <laughs> terrifying. Um but yeah he's given me permission to to have this big sort of expanded universe, as it were, um set in on on a planet that is utterly utterly fucked. Um, and that really (laughs) appeals to me I'm not a big fan of dystopian uh, fiction and I'm not a huge Uh fan of nuclear sort of things either but it's Inferno and because it's a parallel universe you don't have to play you know most things you go right everything up to the point where the devastating thing happened is our world well actually this isn't this is a world that we know from one line in Inferno had changed at least by 1943, because that's when the Defense of the Republic Act came in, according to the brigade leader. And uh-huh. immediately it was like, oh, yes. So between 1943, or probably 1942, and 1970, <laughs> when Inferno is <laughs> dead, uh-huh. uh, in 1975, as far as I'm concerned. So in those 30 years, uh, yes, 30 years. In those thirty years, that's a completely different world. Yeah. And so everything you do with this inferno thing is a is a complete sidestep into not just an interesting story about people trying to survive under terrible, terrible circumstances, but they're surviving a world that isn't our world at all. But is this kind of bizarre fascist dictatorship and and it's that the mentality that runs that kind of world then being taken through to a post uh devastation world you know we always think you look at threads uh, i don't know if you ever saw threads you had the day after over there but if you've ever yeah. seen threads there's a brilliant thing that you know the person that assumes control in threads is a guy that was a traffic warden like a meter maid okay. um and, and because he had that moment of authority, he kind of decides – it's only one tiny little scene – but he decides to be authoritarian about it. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, if you've come from a world that is a dictatorship, that has been crushing the population, all of those nasty little would-be little Hitlers have suddenly got so much power that that's yeah. ten times worse. Because instead of just one person thinking, oh, I've got a bit of power because I had a uniform on – Everybody thinks they had a bit of power because they had a uniform on. And it's 10 times worse for the survivors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had a world in Inferno that was set up as there was a scientific labor camp as as it was. And you think how much of the rest of Britain was turned into labor camps. And then I had this idea and I went through Inferno and I thought I'm pretty certain the word Britain doesn't appear. And I thought, yes, if you were going to have fascism come in in the 1940s bye-bye Scotland and Wales, it's going to be England. It's going to be the the nation of England. There will be no Scotland and there will be no Wales. That will all have become part of England. And so it's just little tiny little touches like that. So everyone talks about the Republic of England, not the Republic of Britain. (laughs) And I think, yeah, that's that's even more twisted and vicious and unpleasant. Um, So it's not a happy world. I tend to write, I think, happy, happy worlds People at the end of it go off and have happy lives, <laughs> and they ain't going to do doing this. I can tell you. Uh-huh. This is this is me This is my nineteen eighty four meets *V for Vendetta* meets *Threads*, <laughs> meets *Doctor Who* inferno, and also uh-huh. you know *Lost in Space* is antimatter man, and and *Star Trek*'s alternative factor and *Mirror Mirror*. You know, it's like yeah. all my favourite things all thrown in into a place where there's no <laughs> happiness, there's no joy, there's no cute, no one's got a cute pet to play with, because, you know, all the animals have been licking up Stalin's gas and turned into primord. <laughs> uh-huh. Um That was one of the things that that really appealed to me, is the idea of thought, yeah, it isn't just primords, is it? You're suddenly going to have a situation where any surviving animals are also going to be primords.
0: Yep.
1: And I just had this idea of I have a, a, a really ridiculous but unavoidable totally unavoidable phobia of cows i am absolutely terrified of cows so suddenly i thought yeah that would be my idea of hell is a field of cows that have been turned into primordial cows Uh uh-huh because they would they've been eating the grass and this stuff will have gone through the grass yep yep everything you do will have been affected by this green ooze and i just thought yeah this is this is this is a nasty world and within that You've got to find nice characters that the audience will want to actually read about and see what happens to them and, and want them to survive and want them to get to where they need to be yeah. um, against this this more than usual, awful backdrop. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. A, that, oh, you this. sold
0: me. That's a that's a, that's a a good pitch. Uh, There's going to be a lot uh, of dead <laughs> people at the end of it, I tell you. So, uh, one more... What was it like writing a comic book after so long? When was the last time
1: you wrote a comic book story? Or a
0: comic book script?
1: Last time I wrote a comic book was the first IDW six-parter. Oh, that's right. I haven't... So that, was, that was a ways back. And that was 2009. Um, that was 2008. Yeah, it was 2008. Was it, it, was 2008. God, was I it tough remember. getting back into the swing of things writing a comic book script? I... I Yes, I, I probably shouldn't say yes, it was easy, but it was easy. was it easy to get back? yeah, it is, but I think the reason I found it quite easy to get back into writing comics is I read comics. you know you you can't it's like I watch animation and therefore I understand the language of animation. I mm-hmm. read comics. I always have done all my life since since I was ten years old and I picked up an issue of Fantastic Four one three three. and since that point, I've read comics every day of my life ever since. Yeah. Um, and therefore, when you read that amount of comics, that language becomes second nature to you. And once you've taught yourself how to write it, um, which I did back in my Marvel days, um, it, it, it was I was rusty. I was certainly rusty. But it's just uh-huh. like flexing old muscles and you go, oh, yeah, I've got muscle memory of how to write comics. I can remember this.
0: Yeah.
1: So it, yeah. You know, it doesn't happen back instantaneously. It. But, it, you know, after... A couple of days, getting it wrong, my brain went, "No, you twat! This is how you write comics. It's not (laughs) like a TV script. It's not like a book prose. It's a comic. Remember how you wrote comics? Oh yeah, Gary, I remember. I write comics. Yeah, we did that bit, don't we? Yeah, and off I went. It's nice to be creative again after three years of doing nothing creative, in a sense of me writing anything. I mean, God, animation is creative, absolutely, but I haven't created anything." for the Mm -hmm. last few years so this has stretched my writing muscles and my imagination again and that's what i needed
0: well that's awesome uh one last question for you um Mm -hmm. as as someone who said many many years ago that you had pretty much done all the doctor who you wanted to do and now you've done the the animated stuff you are working on a, a cutaway comics offshoot comic and you just went back to Gallifrey for uh, uh, to, to for the first time, and I'm not sure how long. Uh, what? How has it been getting back into Doctor Who? Comfortable,
1: very comfortable. Oh yeah, like the most comfortable pair of jeans and sweater you can have. And I was an idiot to say I didn't want to do it anymore. I um, I I,
0: I, I, I think it's it. one of those things that you know if you, you're no matter how much you might say, okay, this is the end and I'm, I've said all I've said about Doctor Who, eventually something's going to pop up or an opportunity is going to present itself to you that you're going to go, no, this is just too good to pass up. Or,
1: I think yep, also, is. to be honest with you, there's a little part of me, I remember as a kid, right, I was Doctor Who avidly from from Trouton onwards, uh-huh. um, but there were periods where I drifted away from it where I thought it was terrible. I thought it was really, really terrible. And I didn't want to... And I wasn't interested in in mentally playing in the world of Doctor Who, even when I was a teenager, because I wasn't enjoying what I was seeing on TV. And then something would come along that I did enjoy on TV, and my enthusiasm would be fired up, and suddenly I'd get back into fandom and things like that. Well, the point where I said I didn't want to do Doctor Who anymore changed... I think, when Jodie Whittaker became the Doctor and I saw her first season. And I think, without consciously thinking, oh, I want to write for Jodie, because that's never been an option. Um, But I think I enjoyed Doctor Who again for the first time in a very long time uh, with the first season of Jodie's stuff. And I think that sparked up my enthusiasm, both with the animation and, and, you know, with wanting to write stuff again in Doctor Who and get involved in fandom again in Doctor Who. Uh-huh. Um, just because I think the last few years of Doctor Who have, have been my kind of Doctor Who, I guess. I mean, I thought Flux was some of the most perfect Doctor Who I've seen in, in you know, fifty years, sixty years of yeah. Doctor Who. Uh-huh. Um, so my enthusiasm for everything is on a high again. Um, and then with Russell coming back, I know <laughs> I know that's going to continue. So um, so it's a good time for me to 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 have found my Doctor Who mojo again. I think. But yep. at the same time, I think I needed that break. I think I needed, you know, five or six years away from it.
0: Yep. It's,
1: you know, I, every, everybody
0: needs that break, you know, sometimes, uh, riding, riding that, that wave of, of fandom and enjoying something for a long period of time, eventually
1: you suffer burnout. Eventually you yeah, say, I, exactly. I need a
0: break. I need to move on to something else.
1: Check something I else. I wrote else, lots try of else. novels. I, I don't write a huge amount of Doctor Who novels, but I was writing Doctor Who novels on a fairly regular basis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I haven't done that in just under 10 years. Um, the last Doctor Who novel I wrote was was in 2014. Um, so that's eight years ago. That's a, that's a long period of time for me not to write anything creatively. Yeah. Um, and I think, yes, And I did this brilliant... Uh, I'm not brilliant for me, but, but brilliant to be involved in a computer game about the Minotra, uh, back in 2017 and that didn't last for very long, but I really yeah. enjoyed that. But at the same time, that was when I was doing the, this will be my last thing because I was just feeling kind of, oh, about Doctor Who. And yeah. then tying in with the animation stuff started up for me was when Jodie was announced and then that first season went out, And it's just like my, my, my heart has soared really with it. Um, you know, and I look at what, what Chris Chibnall and Matt Strebens and everyone have done with Doctor Who in the last, and you know, Jodie and Mandip and Bradley and now John Bishop. and yeah. I'm like, yeah, this is this is Doctor Who that I want to watch, and that's made me feel that I want to start being creative about it again. But it's nice to play in the cutaway universe where I don't have to tie in with anybody's preconceived concepts yeah. of Doctor Who and what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, freedom. To, I i love well, I, I, I went to Titan at one point and said, you know, I'd really like to work on, on your comic series and was greeted with a, I'm not sure who are you? Why, why would we employ you? <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that's kind of telling, isn't it? So I let that one go. But, uh-huh. you know, I'd love to write comics for, for Jodie's Doctor or whoever comes next or anything like that. I'm actually quite happy doing the cutaway stuff really, because it it's the universe to play in but without any of the constraints. Yeah. To be to be on message. And and I've been on message with Doctor Who now since the start of um since I wrote Legacy in nineteen ninety-four, really. Going through DWM and then Big Finish and then working up in Cardiff. And everything has always been on message and on message is great when you're part of it it's not so much fun when you're not part of it so a chance to do something that isn't doesn't have to worry about being on message is uh, kind of cool I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying that enormously and gareth and uh, ian are really good fun editors to work with very creative people um and so you know i don't think i would have done it if it wasn't them Sure. I'm very much well, a person who who wants to work with people that I like and and respect. I think if there'd been a couple of people who I didn't have any time for, I wouldn't have agreed to do it. But, yeah. but their enthusiasm and their honesty fired me up.
0: Well, that's good to hear. I I know I've enjoyed the stuff that Cutaway has put out, and
1: uh, I'm looking well, forward the to The Paradise Towers. Thing is just phenomenally good. Yeah, I really like that. I quite liked Omega, but the the, the paradise towers thing is just brilliant yeah it's uh, it's interesting how
0: they can take uh you know settings or in and change them around and and
1: kind of continue the story onward but do something fresh with it yeah exactly that's the important thing you don't want to retread yep yep doing something
0: uh, new and different is definitely a good thing yes so well, Gary, uh, you know it's been a long time since you and I have chatted, and I, I value our friendship. We've been friends for a long time, and uh, thank you for taking time out of your
1: your schedule to uh, chat with me today about animation, comics, and everything else. My absolute pleasure, mate, and I look forward to next time we actually get to see each other.
0: Many thanks to Gary Russell for joining me, taking time out of his schedule to chat about Doctor Who animation and comics and everything under the sun. Like I said, it's been a long time since Gary and I had chatted, and last time we chatted we talked about comics and about how he got into the comic industry. Uh, This time around it was how he got into the animation business, and Gary I think has one of the most interesting careers that I've seen out of anybody that I know. He's done it all, you know, he's been, uh, he was a childhood actor, he uh, was the editor of Doctor Who magazine, he was a comic book writer, he's done animation now, there's just so much that this, he's a a book writer, there's just so much that Gary has done, he is just amazing on all those fronts, and uh, it's always wonderful to chat with Gary and to get back in touch, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with him. I've... Think it was really, really good, and I enjoyed chatting with him. And thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. I also appreciate all the listeners out there who take time out of their, uh, you know, whatever they're doing, or whatever you are doing, to listen to this episode. Uh, as well as the other episodes. Make sure if you are new to Doctor Who Panel to Panel, you check out the previous episodes. They're easy to find on archive.org for a lot of the older ones or the more recent ones wherever you found this episode. Chances are they have a lot of other Doctor Who Panel to Panel episodes that have great interviews like this one that you'll want to check out. So I hope this episode finds you well and good. And until next time, this is Jeremy Bument saying bye. Dr. Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Dr. Who Comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Dr. Who Comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Dr. Who Panel to Panel, on Twitter at Dr. Who P2P, two being the number two, and online at Dr. WhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Doctor Who panel The panel. Thank you.